That's page 453 of your pew Bibles. Psalm 13. This is the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please open this text to us, convicting us of our sin, comforting us in our sorrow, and strengthening our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Children, have you ever been on a long car ride? Um, what, what question do you tend to ask when you're on a long car ride? Are we there yet? I, I heard that from a few people, yeah. And I'll bet your parents really love answering that question, right? I mean, it's just a simple request for information. Of course, the answer is never yes, is it? It's never yes, we're here now. Um, otherwise, why, why ask the question? Um, and you know, you have to check in, right? Every 30 seconds or so and ask again. Are we there yet now? Okay, how about now? Um, well, um, how much longer is it going to be? Well, I think it can, be, it can be difficult for adults to be patient with children, and this question sometimes, right? Um, but hopefully we can at least understand why that's a question that you would want to ask. Um, waiting is hard, even, even for little things like that. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sure there's things even we adults wait for that are hard for us to wait for. Um, and this question becomes serious in the midst of suffering, right? Enduring through suffering uh, is not easy. And we may find ourselves asking God very often, are we there yet? Um, well, in this psalm, we find David being the one who's asking, are we there yet? Uh, this psalm is part of a larger group of seven psalms. Psalms 11 through 17 form a group. And all of them together unpack Psalms 9 through 10. Um, so this is a group together in the Psalter, Psalms 9 through 10, lay out a bunch of themes, and Psalms 11 through 17, each psalm takes one or two of those themes and unpacks it. Um, it's actually a kind of depressing set of psalms. Uh, if you were there for uh, my preaching through Psalm 12, we saw that it started by saying that the faithful have vanished from the children of man. Um, if you come next week for Psalm 14, we'll be doing uh, There is None Who Does Good. So be sure to come next week. It'll be, it'll be fun. Um, in this psalm, we focus on the fact that David feels forgotten and distant from God. These psalms define a time in David's life when he is extremely isolated and surrounded by enemies. 
he seems like, seems to him like, he's the last person left who believes in God, and he just has to endure through this suffering. As we look at this psalm today, I want us to see three points. First of all, I want us to look at David's question. How long? What does it mean that David is able to cry out to God, how long? So we're going to look at David's question, how long? Second, we're going to look at David's faith. How is David able to trust God in the midst of his sorrow? So our second point, we'll be looking at David's faith. And then finally, the third point, we're going to see how this psalm is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So, point one, this question, how long? David repeats it in the psalm, doesn't he? How long is this going to last, he's asking. In verse one, we see, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? David feels that God has abandoned him, that God is far away, that God has forgotten about him. And David's mind is continually occupied with his distress. Look at verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? His concern is continual. It's this kind of frenetic anxiety continually taking counsel in his soul. Um, Have you ever had an anxiety like this before where you just couldn't stop thinking about something and obsessing about something, um, but your your scheming just went in circles with no uh, solution or escape or way to get out of it? How long, says David, shall my enemy be exalted over me? We don't know when in his life David wrote this psalm. Perhaps it was when he was running away from Saul. Um, That might be a good time, because that wasn't a simple, one-and-done conflict. It wasn't like Goliath, right, where there's one battle, and David has to be brave for that one battle, and then it's over. No, it's a constant thing. Um, If you read that part of David's life, it's like every time he's found somewhere where he can be safe and comfortable, um, and uh, his life can calm down for a little bit, Saul discovers his location, somebody betrays him, and he's on the run again. Um, I don't know if that was when this psalm was written, but it certainly would fit what's described here. Um, It's a constant suffering um, and a a, a constant uh, threat from an enemy. Um, There's this pressure of somebody pursuing him, attacking him, and uh, this exhaustion you feel. How long is this going to last? Um, And... uh, David, he can't really do anything about it. He can't change it or fix it. He just has to sit there under this threefold stress. The stress that God is distant, the stress of his own anxious thoughts, and the stress of this enemy who's gloating over him. So what does David do? What can David do? Well, he cries out to God. You can hear the passion in this, right? He's yelling and screaming. Um, Even if God should be shut up in heaven behind seven sets of pearl gates, he's going to hear about it. Um, He has to, because David doesn't have anywhere else to turn, nowhere else to go for help. He says to God, consider and answer me, or perhaps a little more literally, look at me and answer me. Um, You know, there's a polite, roundabout, formal way to ask for something isn't there? You know, it's like, you know, if it's possible, if you can get to it, if you're not too busy, if you're not doing something else, I wonder if like maybe 
If there's any way that like, you might possibly do this for me, and if you could, that would be great. Please. This is not that. This is not that at all. There are, there are ways to do the same in Hebrew, and this is not that. Um, it's not that David doesn't respect God. That's quite clear. But he's too desperate. He's not dressing up his request in fancy formulas. No, he speaks to God very directly. Look at me. Answer me, Lord God, Lord my God, light up my eyes. This, uh, this metaphor of uh, God lighting up someone's eyes means giving them life, um, to give them sustenance and energy to keep them from fading away. You know that dead stare people can get sometimes. You know? they're, not, they're, they're, they're technically alive, but they're not that alive. Um, light up my eyes, says David, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David feels like he can't go on much longer. He's at the doorway of death. If God's going to save him, God had better act soon. Otherwise, the victory of his enemy will be complete. Wrong and injustice will win out. And the wicked will rejoice when he is gone. It's as if David is saying... Look, it's not just that I don't want to die. Like, I don't, but um, what would be even worse is I just, I just don't want to give them the satisfaction. You know? It just makes, me, makes it all so worse that I know my enemy would just love it. It's the, my enemies are the kind of people who they find joy in crushing righteous people. It's what, it's what makes them get out of bed in the morning. God, like, don't let them have this. So this is David's complaint. How long? How long is this situation going to last? He is close to breaking. And the God who seems so far away is his only hope. Let me, let me ask you something. Is it okay for a Christian to cry out, how long? Uh, can we pray to God the way David prays in this psalm? Or... Do you find yourself feeling like you couldn't possibly be comfortable saying to God, how long? Uh, do you feel like you have to put a happy face on your prayers? That if you don't approach God in just the right way, if you don't use the right formulas, if you don't flatter with Him or bargain with Him or prove how good you are or how great your theology is, that He will get angry and not listen to you. Um, well, this book of Psalms is useful because it's given to us as a model for our prayer. David here is an example we can follow. He's a model of the boldness with which God's children can approach God in prayer. So if he is a model for us, if a Christian really can say to God, how long, O Lord, without that being a sin, what, what does that mean for us? What does, it, what does it have to teach us? Well, first of all, I think it calls out a certain tendency we can have to ignore or suppress negative emotions. Uh, it teaches us that being a Christian isn't just about being happy all the time. It's not about pretending to have our act together, about you know, keeping a step off our lip, but keeping calm and carrying on. Uh, God can handle your emotions. You know, maybe you've had people in your life who couldn't handle your emotions. You, you ever had a relationship like that? Um, where there was somebody who would react really badly if you don't kind of put up a front and really like manage your interaction with them. And you couldn't really be honest with them. 
Um, God's not like that. Your grief, your sorrow, your pain, your anger, your anxiety, you can bring them to him. Uh, And you can be honest with him about how it feels. Even if you're not sure that the theology of how you feel is 100% correct. You know, it's striking in the Psalms that we often find the psalmist saying something that he knows on some level isn't true. Um, For instance, uh, back in Psalms 9 and 10, we find David kind of going back and forth between saying, God, saying that God does not forget the cry of the afflicted, right? He affirms God, God doesn't forget the cry of the afflicted. And yet the very next moment we find him asking God, forget not the afflicted. Uh, you see, David knows that God doesn't forget the poor, and yet David feels forgotten. There, there's this gap between what he knows is true about God and his present experience of God. Have you ever had a similar experience to that? An experience where your theology was tested, where what you had always, always been told about God growing up and what you genuinely believed about him was shaken by a trial or suffering. Maybe you're in the middle of a trial like that right now. Uh, maybe you feel abandoned by God. Maybe you think, man, I come to church on Sunday and The pastor tells me how good God is, but if God's so good, why did he let this happen? Um, If God's so good, why won't he fix this awful thing in my life? Maybe you feel like you can't talk about it with church people because it wouldn't be the right Christian thing to say that you're feeling this way. By the way, as a side note, if you're ever given the opportunity to counsel somebody who's struggling with something like this, and they say something to you that, you know, sounds like it might question God's goodness or doesn't sound like, like perfect theology. Um, it might be a good idea to resist jumping straight into questioning their theology. Right? It, now, it is true that there is such a thing as cursing God in your suffering, and uh, Job is commended for not doing that. Um, but first of all, there's a difference between cursing God and honestly expressing how difficult it is for you to believe in God or believing God's goodness in the present situation. Psalms like this teach us that it's important to be able to speak that kind of pain, um, to struggle uh, with, that struggle with believing. It's important to be able to express what it feels like when we feel we have been forgotten, even if at the same time we know God never forgets us. Uh, Psalms like this teach us that, that God cares, God listens, to his children, even when they have to say things that are difficult or emotional. So consider that instead of immediately correcting the person's theology in that moment, that person might need you to listen to them, to show kindness and patience and compassion to them the way God is patient with us when we complain to him. God is patient with us, and even if, even if we don't bring our complaints to him in a perfectly sinless way, right? Um, uh, like, but uh, even, even if you do come to God and uh, you do sin, God still listens. It's covered by Jesus. That doesn't mean that all complaining is sinful, though. Um, I don't think David's complaint here is sinful. I don't think that David's cry comes from his doubting God. Uh, when he says, will you forget me forever, that's not an accusation. But it's an honest expression of what it feels like. Uh, actually, David's boldness and directness in addressing God, I'd argue, comes from his faith. Um, David's faith is the whole reason he is crying out to God. 
Um, He's throwing himself on God's mercy because he knows that God can act and save. David has other things he could do, right? He could give up on God. He could look to himself. He could worship another God. There There were plenty on offer in his time to get out of his situation. But he doesn't do any of those things. Instead, he brings his suffering to God. Um, and what, we know, what, what is more, we know that what he's asking for is in line with God's will. I mean, David knows that God has promised he will save his anointed king. He knows that God cares for the poor and the afflicted, and that God is angry with their oppression. There is such a thing as a, a holy dissatisfaction with the brokenness and sinfulness of this world. And we should cry out to God when we encounter these things. And maybe some of us should be crying out to God more often. Maybe we've gotten too comfortable with the evil and brokenness in the world. So let me, let me ask you this morning to, to kind of help sum this up. How, how are you doing with this? Do you need to hear this psalm today? Are there areas in your life where you feel like yelling, How long? How long is this going to go on? Maybe you're enduring physical pain or sickness. Uh, Maybe you have a broken relationship in your family, a relationship that you know is not okay, but you can't seem to fix it. It just goes on and on. Um, Maybe you have anxiety about something in your life, and you just can't stop obsessive thoughts about it. Um, Maybe you're lonely, and you feel forgotten. Maybe you've been persevering through some suffering so long that it feels like you're at the end of your rope. Or maybe you've lost someone, as many of us have recently, with Jeff going to glory. Um, What should you do? What should you do in the midst of your sorrow? Cry out to God. He cares. He wants to hear about it. He will be patient with you. You don't need to express yourself perfectly. You can come to him as a loving parent who listens to and comforts his children even when they're a mess. So that's our first point. In the midst of our suffering, we can cry out to God, how long? Second point. Uh, David has faith in the midst of his trials. We've seen in the first four verses of the psalm that David is just pouring his heart out to God. He's not holding back. He's being totally honest that he feels forgotten, that he feels like he can't hold on much longer. But then we come to these last two verses. and There's a shift, isn't there? David says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is actually a pretty common pattern for this type of psalm call it a lament psalm, a psalm where someone is calling out to God about their suffering and their sorrow. It's actually quite common, after the psalmist pours his heart out to God, to also give an expression of what he knows is true about God by faith. Um, Those of you who looked at this passage in your home groups last week uh, may have seen a question where I ask you to go through verses 5 through 6 and see which verbs are past and which verbs are future and try to figure out what time the verbs happened at. That was actually kind of a trick question because it's difficult for us Hebrew scholars to figure out sometimes in the Psalms what time the verses are happening at. So your translations might have actually said different things. Um, I think the ESV gets it right in this passage, though. Um, There's two things in these verses 
that are already true. And there's two things in these verses which refer to the future. It's already true that David trusts in God. It's also already true that God has dealt bountifully with David. But the verses about singing and rejoicing are in the future. Now, there are passages in the Bible that talk about rejoicing in the midst of trials, but David here, he's looking forward to that kind of rejoicing that can't happen yet, that kind of rejoicing that comes after God has given salvation. Uh, David doesn't have that rejoicing yet, but what he can do now is trust in the Lord. In verse 5, David says that he trusts in God's steadfast love. Now, I know this is one of those Hebrew words that you know, pat- preachers always like to mention. Uh, maybe you've, you've heard a preacher mention it before. Uh, the word hesed. Uh, and it's hard to translate. Sometimes we translate it mercy. Sometimes kindness or loving kindness or steadfast love. It refers to the love of God that sticks with us. Even when the going gets tough. And even when we are at our most sinful, even when we uh, break our relationship with God and walk away from him, God's hesed is that love whereby he chases us down. Um, God's hesed is displayed through these concrete acts of kindness through, towards his people again and again and again and again. As David says in verse 6, he has dealt bountifully with me. You see, David knows that God is full of hesed, because God has acted so many times in the past to deliver him. Even in the seeming hopelessness of his present situation, David hasn't forgotten about all the past evidences of God's love to him. And because of his faith, David also has hope. He looks forward to the day when he will be able to rejoice in God's salvation. Notice the contrast that is drawn here. In verse 4, we hear about the wicked, and we hear about them rejoicing. What do the wicked rejoice in? Well, they, they will rejoice if David is shaken. But David expects to rejoice in God's salvation. There's two kinds of joys being referred to here. One is a joy of the world that rejoices in oppressing, oppressing and crushing and destroying other people through its own might and power. But there's another kind of joy, a joy which rejoices in God, and the salvation he brings. David doesn't respond to worldly oppression with worldly tactics. He doesn't rely on his own power to bring down his enemy. Rather, he looks to find his joy in God. And because he worships a trustworthy and mighty God, he has a sure hope that God will give him joy. There's a a bit of a paradox here, isn't there? David is both profoundly sorrowful in this psalm. But at the same time, he's also profoundly hopeful. He feels forgotten by God, but he also trusts in God. Um, This teaches us that true faith does not mean that we don't sorrow. Um, And at the same time, that sorrow doesn't cast out true faith. Living in faith always means living in this tension between what we believe and what we can see, right? Because we know, God has, we know what God has promised, uh, and yet we also have what we feel and experience as our current reality. See this in a number of uh, passages. So Hebrews 1.11, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Or what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.7, We walk by faith, not by sight. 
We see the truth of that in this psalm, don't we? David gives full vent to the anguish of not being able to see God. God has turned his face away from him. David feels that God is distant. But at the same time, he expresses his trust in who God is. Though David can't see God, and he cannot know what God's up to in his suffering, or when God's going to step in to put an end to it, David nevertheless trusts that God will act to deliver him. Um, what would that look like for you today? I mean, what do you think when we hear about David's faith? How, how's, how's your faith doing? Um, it, it's, it's, a cha- it's a challenge, right? It can be a tall order to have faith when there's difficult circumstances in our lives. Um, and um, and one, of the things, one of the things we learn is not to have a false view of faith as meaning that we don't sorrow, right? And that's a, that's a big, uh, uh, big lesson from this. Um, but if your faith is weak, as our faith so often is, and as my faith so often is, um, what, what, do, what do we need to hear? How can we be encouraged to trust in God? Well, I think there's a couple things we can learn from David here. Um, and in this passage, we see uh, David's faith looking backwards and looking forwards. First of all, David's faith looks back to the past acts of God to deliver him in his life. These uh, times when God has intervened, um, as uh, John Newton calls them, these Ebenezers, after that time when uh, God's people are delivered from their oppressors and they put up this Ebenezer, a stone of help, a monument to remind them of that time God helped them. Um, and so when you're in the midst of trials, one way to encourage your faith is to think back to other times in your life when you've been in trial. Other times in your life when it seemed like there was no way out and there was no hope, but then God did step in and God did deliver you. Um, looking back at these times can help strengthen your faith, and I think it's one of the reasons why older, more mature Christians do tend to have a faith that's been hardened and seasoned by their experience through God bringing them out of many trials. Um, so we can look back on God's past faithfulness in our lives, and I encourage you to meditate on those times uh, when God has delivered you. Don't forget them. We can also look forward to, these pr- to, to meditate on the promises God has given us, right? This is what David's doing here as well. He's looking forward to this promise of deliverance God has given him, and he's... Uh, he is imagining and contemplating how joyful he's going to be, how he's going to sing when God delivers him. So when we're in the midst of trials, we can look back towards what God has done for us, and we can look forward to his promises as a way of stirring up our faith. So that's our second point. Despite his suffering, David trusts in God. But we can't just end with David here today. Because if David had a good reason to trust God, because of God's long history of dealing bountifully with him, how much more reason do we find to trust God in what was done in Jesus? Jesus is God's definitive answer to David's question, how long? Do you remember the story of Simeon and Anna? It's one of my favorite Bible stories. It's in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, when Jesus is brought to the temple to be circumcised on the eighth day as just a little baby. And we learn about these two people, Simeon and Anna, who spend all their time in the temple, and as Luke puts it there, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The the sorrows of Israel weigh on them, and they're waiting for God to console Israel. What does Simeon say 
when he sees this little eight-day-old baby. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The salvation that David's looking forward to, that's promised to Israel, that Simeon and Anna are in the temple waiting for. He sees Jesus and he says, this is it. This is God's salvation. It's what we've been waiting for. Finally, the time has come when God is going to set things right. And yet, in order to bring this salvation, Jesus is destined to suffer, isn't he? In Jesus, God himself enters into our lowly state, taking on all the futility and suffering of human existence, entering into the oppression of poverty. Jesus has to take upon himself every kind of human grief before he can triumph over them. A couple of weeks ago, Mike led us through a passage where we see Jesus angry and weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. And that's not the only time in his life when Jesus gave vent to his sorrow. Um, We see him mourn over God's wayward people. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. And we'll see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, sorrowful and troubled at the trial he's about to undergo, asking that this cup might be taken from him. And yet we also see his faith in that sorrow, right? When Jesus says to his Father, not what I will, but what you will. And then we see Christ arrested, falsely accused, beaten and hung on a cross. And the greatest sorrow of all, he's forsaken by his Father as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, in order for God to answer David's question, how long? God's own Son must enter into that question put himself in the place where he has to cry out that question and not receive an answer, to have God's face turned away from him. In his flesh, the Son of God suffers, not just the physical torment, but also the distance and turning away of God's face, being forgotten by God. Exactly what David felt is carried out on Jesus. Yet still, Jesus perseveres by faith. Even when God seems distant from Jesus, he still trusts in him. And he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Jesus perseveres through his suffering. His faith is a perfect faith. It's so much greater than ours. Uh, And if you find your lack of faith convicting this morning, if 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 you hear that exhortation to faith and you think, I am just so empty of faith, then this is an encouragement for you. Even your weak faith can save because Jesus is the one who had perfect faith. His obedience, his his unwavering faith, even to the point of death on the cross, is given to you in place of your own disobedience. He receives the curse so that you might receive God's loving kindness. But Jesus does receive an answer, right? Not immediately, not in the moment, but ultimately. Hebrews 5.7 tells us in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard for his godly fear. 
The proof of that's in Jesus' resurrection. God raises Jesus from the dead and crowns him with glory and might. Jesus' faith in God is vindicated when he receives God's salvation. And in Jesus, we too have received an answer to the question, how long? Uh, In Christ, our suffering is already conquered. We are raised with him and given new life. But what does that that mean for us? What, What does that mean for you today? Well, if you're united to Christ, The meaning of your suffering is transformed in a way even David couldn't have understood. In Romans 8.17, Paul says that we are God's adopted children if we suffer with Christ, that we might be glorified with him. It's kind of a strange idea to wrap your mind around, right? Um, If we suffer as Christ suffered, paradoxically, that's the sign that God loves us and it's the guarantee of our future glory. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.10, we always carry the death of Jesus in our bodies so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Not, we carry the death of Jesus, but despite that, we also carry the life of Jesus. But we carry the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested. Um, In other words, suffering is part of how God unites us more closely to Jesus. Jesus' death has to be more and more worked into us so that his life can be more and more worked into us and so that we can be prepared for that future day of glory. And it's in light of that future glory that we are enabled to persevere through suffering. This is the answer to the how long question. If we suffer presently, it brings us closer to Jesus. And if we suffer presently, We look forward to a day when the glory he has has now will be revealed in us as well. And it's not that we don't still cry out how long, right? We saw that passage from Revelation 6 where the souls of the martyrs are crying out to God how long. Our hope of salvation should not make us more insensitive to the evils of sin and oppression. It should make us more sensitive. It should make us cry out against evil. But as we grieve, we grieve as those who have a hope. As we cry out, we cry out as those who know that God has fixed the day when he will come to judge the world. Jesus has defeated sin, death, and Satan once and for all at the cross. You know, the world around us, it looks so solid and stable. The power of evil seems so fixed and entrenched. But if you take a close look at the pillars holding up this world, you'll see these little hairline fractures growing and spreading. Um, what Jesus has done has, has sealed the end of this world and it's just temporary. We're just waiting for that day when it all comes down. One day soon the world will collapse, the sky will be torn open, and all nations will see the glory of Christ together. All sorrow and darkness will be chased away on that day as the Lamb who once suffered and dies comes to end the suffering of his saints. So as you wait today for Christ's coming, as you seek to persevere through your own suffering, as you cry out, how long? Remember the answer God has given and will give in Christ. In Jesus, you have a guarantee that God will not forget you, that there will be an end to suffering and salvation from death. How we will rejoice 
on that day, how we will sing with saints and angels when faith becomes sight and when we fully realize what it means to say, He has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are aware of the suffering in the world and the evil in the world, and uh, we suffer as well in our own lives. Thank you that you are a Father we can come to, that you are a God who listens, a God who loves us, a God who does not forget the poor and the oppressed. Lord, give us faith for those times when we don't see your face. Give us faith for those times when we feel forgotten. And this coming week as we go out into the world, help us to remember what you've done for us in Jesus. Help us to remember uh, his death in our place. Help us to remember his resurrection, which guarantees the hope of the end of all suffering. Help us to look forward to that day when Christ will return and we will see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.